0: Hi, and welcome to the first episode of the history and conversation podcast i'm hannah elias
1: and i'm liam cunningham we'll be your hosts for the first series of this podcast presented by the institute of historical research at the university of london
0: our aim in this series is to explore how we understand the past it feels like history has never been more important or more urgent to understand than in this current political climate
1: this series will feature regular conversations with people who write collect and protect our shared history Whether that's historians, campaigners, artists, or curators, or anyone else at all, we're not that fussy.
0: Our goal is to talk about how we can better understand what's happening around us, how the past can be used or manipulated, and how new interpretations of who we were can expand our sense of who we are.
1: In the process, we'll talk to historians and lovers of history about their research and discoveries. We plan to spotlight new directions in history and creative ways that people are bringing the past to light.
0: In today's episode, I'll be talking to Professor Jo Fox, who is our boss and the director of the IHR, the UK's National Centre for History. Jo is an expert in the history of truth and lies. She has written about propaganda and psychological warfare in Britain and Germany during the World Wars and is currently working on a project on rumour and politics in England from 1500 to the present day. She's an advocate for equality and widening participation in higher education, and she's the first female director of the IHR in its near 100-year history. I'm speaking to her just a few hours before her inaugural lecture hi joe hi (laughs) thank you for joining me on the day of your inaugural your inauguration day okay (laughs) Uh, so tonight your lecture is going to be on fake news facing the perfect storm Mm -hmm. and i just wanted to ask i know this is something you're going to be talking about a lot in a few hours but what is the perfect storm that we're facing
2: the perfect storm is a whole confluence of factors that we now face when we're thinking about propaganda because that's really what we're talking about the phenomenon of fake news misinformation disinformation you know these are all under that umbrella term of propaganda well what what we're facing now are a series of factors that have smashed together they've collided together and that is that the speed scale and scope of our information and communications have changed radically with the internet. And particularly with social media platforms, when individuals are able to publish, where fact checking has become much more problematic, where investigative journalism has um, been under assault, where even mainstream politicians now denounce uncomfortable truths as fake news where there are certain actors out there seeking to destabilize our whole notion of expertise and truth to their own ends. And in that environment, truth becomes utterly fragmented with potentially disastrous consequences, where we don't even need human intervention anymore to generate propaganda, where bots, can suck down and draw down information from the internet, repackage it and distribute it at a scale we've never seen before, add into that mix seismic shifts, or seemingly seismic shifts in our political culture, and the, the sense that individuals feel disempowered by our political systems in the West, all of that is, has been on a collision course. And it seems that we're entering a new phase. Of course, we're not. All of these factors have been historically present before. Although our technologies have advanced, and although it's that issue of speed, scale, and scope, that's changed, of course. But a lot of what we're seeing now is really quite familiar. But we feel it's different. We feel it's new. And interestingly, when this has happened in the past, every generation has felt that this is new and that they're undergoing some radical transformation in the political system or the way that we communicate ideas. That's always been the case.
0: You mentioned that um, technology and bots have played such a significant role in the speed, this acceleration of propaganda. And I'm just wondering, you know, in addition to that fact about disempowerment, changes in our political culture, what are some of the ways that we can try and guard against these changes? Or do you think the cat's out of the bag?
2: You can't. Propaganda is a, is a fact of modern life. And I think some of the issues, there's a lot of debate about solutions to fake news, whether that's legal, whether that's through inoculation theory, uh, whether that's through fact-checking, whether that's through controlling platforms. All of Again, all of those solutions have been proposed in the past. It's only when we finally acknowledge that the spread of fake news is part of the human condition, it is a very human behaviour, when we acknowledge that, we might start to think about what will the solutions be. I think there are a couple of solutions here. One is very immediate, and yes, you can start to think about how social media platforms can be more responsible. For example, by rethinking the algorithm by which the information we receive is produced, it could throw up much more legitimate sources. And I think we have to be clear that there are legitimate sources and illegitimate sources. Mm -hmm. Um, The second thing is civic education, critical digital literacy, Developing skills at a very young age and throughout our lives about how we navigate this new info-sphere. And the third thing really is um, self-regulation. We have to start becoming responsible um, about the kinds of content we share and the way that we engage with one another in communications on these new platforms. Um, I don't think the answer is to be found in censorship or regulation, extensive heavy-handed regulation. History has shown us that this simply doesn't work. It just drives curiosity even more. And people will go maybe to harmful sources (laughs) that you don't want them to go through in pursuit of information. People become highly suspicious that censorship is extending to opinion. Um, so I'm not sure that will work. People have tried to tried inoculation theory in the past. If we know how propaganda works, we'll be able to defend and guard ourselves against it. Well, no, <laughs> because if we accept it's an intrinsic human behaviour, we need to find solutions that respond to that. And any solutions we have have to be realistic and proportionate. And we have to be aware of the law of unintended consequences that over-regulation might start to see things drift into censorship. And how does it, you know, there's got the central dilemma. How does uh, that control sit without democratic freedoms? Well, not easily. And we know, you know, not easily through the whole of the 20th century.
0: You um, are raising such good points about, you know, propaganda It feels like a, a fact of modern life now. And there's been a lot of uh, commentators and writers who've started to <clears throat> label this age particularly post brexit post the election of donald trump as a post truth era do you think that we are living in a distinct era a post truth sort of era or is or is this more continuity from the early 20th century
2: no there's no there's no i, I don't think there's anything such as post truth and I, the thing that I become most exercised about is, is this because I think that there are some out there who want us to be in a post-truth era where, um, that where all truths are, are questioned and our entire way of understanding basic facts about life are destabilised. In that environment, anything can become true and we eschew expertise. And I I really do think it is vitally important that we restate the importance of expertise and facts. There are facts, at least as we know them now, based on legitimate evidence, based on scientific evidence. I mean, let's look at where the real damage is being done here. If we choose to ignore 96% of the world's climate change experts... We are potentially heading for a planetary crisis, or alternatively, if we look at the anti-vaccine rumours that circulate, we are now seeing the resurgence of diseases in parts of the world that have been all but eradicated. And the reason we <laughs> this is happening is because there are scientific facts underpinning this. Import. We cannot continue just to simply deny expertise. There, you know, We do not live in a post-truth era. We never have. Mm. We can choose to, but I think it is highly dangerous.
0: Uh, speaking about expertise and the, the importance of valuing facts, you're obviously in a unique position in your role as the director of the Institute of Historical Research to speak up on behalf of historical experts particularly, but what do you see as the the particular value of historical um, education, uh, the understandings of historical significance uh, in in kind of combating some of these these areas of misinformation?
2: It gives you context. You know, I I think one of the things that's really important is that historians practice what we might call slow thinking and we interrogate questions very deeply and think about all the possible causes and consequences. Why do things happen? Why do some things work, some things don't work? What were the choices facing individuals in the past? All of these things are vitally important to understanding complex problems and we are faced today with a series of complex problems. The issue of fake news and disinformation is not a simple problem, it is highly complex and highly contingent on a number of factors. But yet, when we look at how one, how certain individuals are seeking to tackle these problems, they're reactive, they're knee-jerk, it's all bound up in short-term thinking. And I think historical analysis can give that deep, slow thinking that is genuinely needed to resolve issues, or at least to mitigate against the harms of certain things that are happening, like the change in our communications ecosystem. Historians are uniquely placed, I think, to respond to those questions, and context is everything, so that we don't make rash decisions about things that need to be thought through slowly.
0: You've written brilliantly about propaganda in Britain and Germany and I know you're doing work on the political warfare executive at the moment. Um, we see a lot of references to the second world war in <clears throat> contemporary politics, um, misappropriations, misuses, manipulations of what happened during the war to be used by for political gain, for party gain. Um, what are the comparisons that we can draw today between the way propaganda operated in the Second World War and how it operates today. One of the things that I find really fascinating about the way that propaganda is,
2: or or the Second World War is deployed, is the fact that the way we deploy it in some circles, in political rhetoric is actually derived from the propaganda narratives that were constructed during the war itself and it opens up a very interesting question for historians about the longevity of propaganda campaigns. How long is the legacy of a particular campaign? because there comes a point at which these propaganda narratives constructed very specifically for a particular moment in time have become embedded in our national psyche. They've become part of our identity, but they are nonetheless propaganda constructs. Let's take, for example, notions of the People's War, the Dunkirk spirit, the Blitz spirit. All of these are now being evoked in very politicized ways without any sense in which, one, they were propaganda (laughs) in and of their own time and are being reused or reworked or rebranded in pursuit of new political ends. Um, and, And second, that they are problematic in their own right. If we interrogate those concepts historically, we find that the people's war, disintegrates, rather. You know, how does one stack up the people's war with um, gender, persistent gender inequalities or questions over the empire and ethnicities and contributions to the war? How does that stack up when um, one thinks about looting or the black market? These things are complex and were understood to be complex at the time. How, it's a bit like a good, rich source. The essence of it has been boiled down. And interestingly, it's to those concepts that we turn again when we're in moments of crisis. We always go back to them because they're comforting. Um, what happened during the 7-7 bombings? Well, we started to draw comparisons with the Second World War. We compared the bomb on the bus at Tavistock Square with bombed out images of, of bombed out buses on the Blitz. Um, uh, Noel Cowards, London Pride was reproduced in some newspapers in full. Some of the editorials in newspapers um, used almost the precise words of the film London Can Take It. All of those things are part of a propaganda construct, and I think we have to be very, very careful about how we use them
0: propaganda constructs also get embedded into our archives and in the way that we preserve our record about the present and um last week we hosted an event with the national archives that was interrogating this question i was wondering if you had any thoughts about this you know how do we guard against um fake news in the archive how do we guard against propaganda in the archive
2: well one of the things that i didn't realize prior to this con uh, this conference was that i'd always uh, had a sense that um there was a certain authenticity in, in the archive. Now, I hadn't at all thought that in the digital age, the archive could be hacked and the historical record amended. Well, this is why um, archivists are now working alongside companies working with a technology called blockchain, which is effectively an archival fingerprint to guarantee the authenticity of the historical record. I mean, that we're talking about that issue is, is absolutely extraordinary. And uh, it, it's an issue that that um, I think is, is really critical, and I'm glad people are thinking about it. But when we think about what will that historical record look like? Well, I do wonder whether the digital age means that, um, strangely, we might be working in uh, ways that are more akin to medieval history, with a fragmented archival trace, um, or one might think that we would be overwhelmed with an abundance of sources for our age. I mean, think of the information that we now have access to, but there are no guarantees about the preservation of that of that digital archive websites, we don't even know whether we'll be able to preserve them and read them, will we have the technologies to be able to read what we're seeing now on the web? Um, What exactly is being deposited in the National Archives when it comes to government records, for example? I mean, how many conversations about Brexit took place on private text conversations between the key actors? Um, how much on WhatsApp, how many on private emails, what exactly are we archiving here? And all of the information that one would have naturally flowed into our historical record may be absent. There are no guarantees. Where is the relationship between the public and private record here? Um, And and is, is everyone preserving their text messages? I doubt it. I doubt it. And yet these were the substance of of how we've interpreted at least modern history. But when we're looking at what will be left, we'll be using the same techniques as medieval historians to piece this together, to wonder about the lost...
0: That's so memories. fascinating, that's so fascinating to think about um, the, yeah, the kind of digital archaeology that's going to have yeah. to take place to recover yeah. our history. And
2: I don't think we've, we've had any any sense, I don't think we've really come to terms with how historians will be working 10 years from now,
0: let alone 100 years from now. Yeah, well thank you so much for your time, you've raised so many interesting questions, so many important questions for us to think about, and I know you're off to now give a two-hour lecture, so <laughs> thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. My pleasure.
1: Thank you for listening to the first episode of the History and Conversation podcast. Please subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher or Pocketcast or find updates on our website, history.ac.uk. You can also follow us on Twitter at IHR underscore history and on Facebook and Instagram too.